0: I'm Catherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. Well, hello. Welcome. If this is the first time you are listening to Uncertain, or perhaps it has been a while, Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of an organization called Tears of Eden. Tears of Eden is a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse, religious abuse, religious trauma, And the way the podcast participates in that is we have interviews with authors, artists, experts, survivors to provide resources for survivors to understand their experience and also to validate the experience of survivors. So this is for survivors and hopefully for folks who are their allies and supporting them as well. I am your host. I am a certified trauma recovery coach. I'm also the founder of Tears of Eden, and I'm really happy that you are here. It is Spiritual Abuse Awareness Month. It is still January as this episode is coming out. This interview is with Rachel Bernstein, who is a therapist. She has a very wide range of folks that she works with, but one demographic of people that she works with are folks from cults who have survived cults and high control environments. And this episode is a super practical episode that I would say is for a mental health professional who wants to work with this demographic of folks who have come from high control environments. So if you have experienced spiritual abuse and you've experienced abuse in a religious context, you can safely put that in that high control religious environment. If you've experienced spiritual abuse in a family dynamic, probably the same thing. And a lot of, as we will hear in this episode, a lot of abusive families resemble cultic control, high control religion, and what it's like to experience abuse in a church. So there's a lot of overlap here. But this is for mental health professionals who want to work with that demographic. It's also for folks who are looking for a mental health professional. This will help you decide what you're looking for. It will help you ask informed questions when you do the consultation. And it'll help you know if maybe the therapy or the coaching that you are receiving right now is working for you or not. And if your mental health professional really gets what you went through or not. And as we will also discuss in this episode, sometimes mental health professionals are not trained in this. Doesn't mean that the folks that have not been trained in this cannot help us. But looking for someone who actually understands this demographic of people and actually specializes in this demographic of people is going to be really helpful. So take that as you will. Here is my interview with Rachel Bernstein. Hello.
1: How are you doing today? I am doing really good. How are you doing today? I am
0: good. I am a little tired i went to a midnight book release on monday night mm-hmm. and i don't ever stay up that late and uh-huh. i'm still sleeping <laughs> <laughs> that was a new thing for me i was like this uh-huh. is what teenagers do these are not oh, yes who we are almost forty do." Mm-hmm. but it was fun it was a fun experience yeah. i'm glad very excited to talk to you Today, I know you have Indoctrination podcast Mm -hmm. and you do a lot of different work with a lot of different clients, but the particular demographic that I would love to talk to you about is the demographic of folks who've been in cults or high control experiences. And I would love to hear from you what prompted you to work with this demographic and what was the story that led you to working with this type of client?
1: Nice. Okay. So there's so much to this story. I'll try not to make it overly long, but okay, <laughs> no, go for <laughs> it. Tell, tell, okay. tell whatever. <laughs> Just slightly long, longer than it needs slightly to be, long not overly. Before. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. So when I was growing up, my one of my siblings who was 8 years older got kind of a new friend through a friend and they started hanging out a lot. Next thing we know, she's not really spending time at home. She has taken the money out of her account. And it's gone, which she had really worked hard for. In my family, we were supposed to work from when we were young. If we needed cash for anything, even to go to the movies. Well, you need to earn it. You know, it was like that. So, it, you know, we didn't take spending lots of money all at once lightly, because we know how much we had worked to make it, and suddenly it was liquidated, gone. And she was speaking differently. She was acting in a very kind of in-your-face way. And we we're like, what is going on? So then she said that she has this friend of a friend who's introduced her to this place. It's called Scientology. Got it. And, and it's a church, but we're a Jewish family, but it's not a church church. That would, that became a line in our family forever. It's not a church church. Like it's what? Church. I'm sorry. Church, <laughs> what? But church, church But it's not a church church, but it's not. So, I, cause there really wasn't the idea of a word cult that was known at the time. I and mean, this was in the seventies. So right there was no one to call. There were no resources the, you know, the books out there at the time before the interwebs, the, the books were written by cult leaders. Like there were L. Ron Hubbard novels out there about Dianetics and his science fiction books, but nothing about what is Scientology and that it is a cult. And the, the cult books that were out there too, were more about like working with P.O.W.'s who had been indoctrinated and watching the Manchurian Candidate and were like, yeah, fit, but not. Mm. So the turning point was, and I learned a lot about this, my, my parents responded different ways to stressful events. My mom was more of a kind of in your face, you have to stop this right now, finger pointing I mean that that does sometimes come in handy, right? Mm-hmm. And my father instead was the let me link arms with this person, see what they like about it, see what's interesting to them, but also I want to ask my questions about what I'm concerned about. So they had tension and we she had tension with my parents, and she said, this group is going to teach me how to get along better with with all of you. And, and my friend said she's gotten along better with her parents since she's gotten involved. And so my father in a very nice way said, could we call her parents and find out like, if this really has helped, then I'll say, okay. And she got the number of this person and their parents. And the parents said in this kind of panic tone, where did you see our daughter? whoa right that was a whoa and my dad goes what do you mean we haven't we don't know where she is <gasps> she left home six months ago and she said for the last six months she's been getting along better with her parents she hasn't seen them wow. so this is the way the group defined getting along yeah. better right no contact no cut them off oh that my actually goodness. startled my sister she didn't know <laughs> she didn't know that's what that meant and she tried to get her money back. That was impossible. But the, you could see the personality change right away. And you could see that being in your face. And she was having problems with her friends at school for the first time, too, because she was learning other ways of communicating, the Scientology way of communicating, which is very in your face. So that became dinner table conversation. Like, How can this happen that people can just take over someone's mind and convince them that something is true that's really not true? That's totally the opposite of yeah. what was true. And then because I then was raised hearing about this and that there are many groups that do their recruiting also on college campuses and they use front names, I then went to college and I saw it. I saw these groups with their front names that I had learned. And they're at the student union, you know, passing out their pamphlets, having people join, taking them on weekends. The bus picked up in front of my dorm. And I remember, because I was now cult educated, (laughs) I said to these people, where are you going? And they said, oh, we're going on a church weekend. What church is it? We don't know. Really? You don't know. And where are you going? Well, we're going to the mountains. I go, you know, that's not a place. Like mountains... (laughs) Or these geographical structures (laughs) and geological entities, uh, that's not a place. Do you know where you're going? Is there going to be a phone there? Like, how are you going to leave? And they just thought I was being a drag. And I remember the leaders coming on the bus and asking me who I was and why I was harassing the people who were going. But I thought that's some the of them best are gonna be dropping out of school after this and needing to show their yeah. devotion to this group and not school because that's what would happen. Suddenly these people were gone. Yeah. And then to to make so there are just two more parts of this story. And it really is this is a shorter version. When I then went on to grad school to become to to become a therapist to learn counseling, there was a a group therapy course where you learn to do group therapy that turned out to be run like a cult. The leader of it, who is the mm. teacher, used utilized almost every technique of influence and manipulation. And that was just her personality. And I did a social experiment in that class, which was interesting because I noticed this was the year before my dad passed away, the year before I broke up with my boyfriend, the year before my favorite dog passed away. Like I was just on the cusp of going through lots of trauma. Yeah, but and until then, life had been okay. But we were supposed to share our traumas. And if we didn't have trauma to share, like if we hadn't gone through abuse or something, we were withholding. We were being resistant to the process. Uh-oh. And then I could see people folding, like I could see them making stories wow. up it, just to be liked and then they would be hugged by the people in the group thank you for trusting us with your trauma and with your with your past so people were just crafting stories to please the teacher i thought wow this is happening in a therapy class i remember talking to my dean about that he was actually a little alarmed and i didn't want my i did my dissertation on what happened in that class for that school <laughs> it was really cool. That was controversial. Uh-oh. But then I, I thought, you know, I want to do this work because there were so few resources for people mm-hmm. and I, yes, I want to do general counseling. I still do some general counseling, but about 80% of the counts counseling I do is former cult. stuff. And then I start that they were looking for a clinician at a place called the cult clinic in Los Angeles, which was effectively mm-hmm. shut down by Scientology. But that was my first taste of harassment, Scientology harassment, mm-hmm. which did scare me. I mean, they had discredited LAPD officers that they hired to harass people, to follow people. They were scary, scary mofos, if ah. I can say Leaning on my car when I'd come out of the office, following me home, sending people into to pose as clients. And I'd get this note saying, just to let you know, we're watching and listening and thought, what the hell is this? Wow. And so I remember staying home for about a week. My father had passed about a year before this. And suddenly I heard his words, which were, you can't let the bullies win. That was his way of looking at the world. Like, you cannot let the bullies win. And I thought, okay, but I need a week. <laughs> Can I just have a week? I'm like talking to him wherever he is. So he's already passed. Uh, and I had to like get myself together and... See what my take rights were. break. Yes, take we're a not. little break, okay. right? Yes,
0: we're not letting them win, but I do need a break. Here. I
1: need a break because they're outside my house, and I need to know if I'll be protected. I need to contact the police, and then I went back to work. And I thought, what I'm dealing with in terms of harassment is only slightly what former Scientologists deal with, <laughs> and other they're, people. From other pretty people.
0: Intense. Yeah. intense. Yeah, very intense.
1: Really intense.
0: And like so, tapping phones, so, intense, right? Yeah.
1: Like stalking mm-hmm. people, and yeah. Yeah, they've complained to my board many times to try to have my license taken away. They, they're they no nonsense, mm-hmm. but it's what happens to me and to a couple of my, you know, colleagues. And And I think to me, especially because where I started doing my work, my counseling was very close to the Scientology buildings in Hollywood. So I started working with a lot of Scientologists and have continued working with them. So they don't like me, but okay. So- <laughs> That's, that's sort of how I got started in this. So, yeah. And then how many years
0: would you say that this has been like the folks, is it kind of been from the beginning?
1: Yeah. It's been, since I've been doing counseling, it's been 32 years and it's morphed over time in that before it really was, was, I thought this was fascinating. This was a human rights issue to me, especially the way in a lot of these groups, the women were treated and children were treated or mistreated, neglected. And, and then over time it morphed to include now people who have been in relationships with narcissists because i would do a talk on cults or something and someone would call me and say that sounds like my husband like <laughs> mm-hmm. oh what do you mean and i kind of learned from people responding to my words about cults saying no that was my family that or that was my relationship so th- i realized too now with you know with political landscape and so many people having polarized views of things and groupthink that I think is very scary that's happening right now in the world too. That I care about this on a micro level and also macro. That mm-hmm. as the descendant of Holocaust survivors, I'm, I care a lot about groupthink and how people can be kind of how mm, do you
0: get to that place? It right,
1: caught up into a froth, right. a t- torch and pitchfork way of, yeah. right. And then also still on the micro person by person, listening to what they've been through and trying to help them individually. Mm -hmm.
0: Two, two observations. First of all, I noticed that when you were talking to those people who were getting on this bus to go to the quote unquote mountains and then your, your father's approach to your sister lot of questions. There was like a lot of asking of Mm -hmm. questions. And I sure I'm sure we'll get into that in just a minute. But I I noticed that. And then also I do appreciate that you address the fact that like a narcissistic relationship can have that similarity because I feel like I know like in the world that I work in, we have a much better, a broader view of like what a cult can be and what a high control relationship can be and what a high control religion can be. But Most folks still think of a cult as like something happening in a bunker somewhere or out in the desert and expanding what that can be and what that high control relationship can be. And there are so many people who experience that, but then have that very just invalidating experience of like, nobody knows what this is like. It feels like a cult, but I can't call it a cult because it doesn't look like this. And, and so I appreciate that you made that connection between that narcissistic mm-hmm. relationship and that cult, mm-hmm. that cult experience. The impact can be very, very similar.
1: The impact is very similar, I think, because the, not every cult is run by a narcissist. Some really are, you know, th- they have their delusional disorder and they get people into this diagnosis that. Is called folie adieu, which is shared psychosis. Like they invite people who are maybe vulnerable to that way of thinking into their psychosis. But by and large, I'd say a good 90% of cult leaders have a narcissistic bent. And so then, whether it's your partner, your parent, even your child, there's some people who contact me because their children are narcissistic and run their life because the, it's the same disorder that's prompting it, you're going to have similar techniques. Like they've read the same manual. It's kind of amazing. And and then when you have similar techniques of of manipulation, gaslighting, all of it, you're going to have similar outcomes. So mm-hmm. it could be a one-on-one situation or it could be hundreds of thousands of people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that can be helpful for someone who is recovering from that type of relationship, like even looking for someone who has the high control uh, experience when they are looking for a mental health professional right. because that would be maybe not necessarily just a narcissistic relationship but someone who has that experience might be able to relate with that a little more you may already know this but the uncertain podcast is the affiliate podcast of tears of eden a nonprofit that serves as a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse this podcast and the work of tears of eden are supported by donations from generous listeners like you if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider giving a donation by using the link in the show notes or visiting tearsofeden.org/support. You can also support the podcast by rating and leaving a review and sharing on social media. If you're not already following us, please follow us on Facebook at Tears of Eden and Instagram at Uncertain Podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and now back to the show. One of the things that's unique about your story is you didn't get into this demographic because you had a personal experience being in a cult. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really unique. I feel like everyone that I know who gets into this demographic also had an experience in it. That makes your story very unique to me. But then also, what are some things that you have learned over the years from your clients about what they need for recovery?
1: Right. It's a great question. So yes, and it it is unique that I haven't been in one myself. And I think that's why I work almost equally with the families and friends of people who are in situations like this or in relational situations like this and have a webinar for them too, because I was One of those, like being on the outside, needing to figure out how to have these conversations, how to manage the anxiety that comes up when you see your loved one getting slowly stolen away from you and you don't know what this force is that's on them and how to see if you can get them back and if it's even possible. And learning about the ways to communicate that are in a kind of counterintuitive way that are specific for this has been something I noticed from my own family, but also now for where they're doing this work and, and learning about that. So, right. I mean, what people need, it's interesting when you talk about doing this kind of counseling for the people specifically who were in situations like this, whether it is a cult or a relationship, that took over their life, multi-level marketing, mm-hmm. abusive teen treatment place, whatever it was or is, oh, or having been with a therapist who yeah. was dangerous, which I talk about a lot. I, well, it's unconscionable to me to use that power in that way. Mm, makes me mad. And so there are there are some things that are really important, I think for specifically when people are coming out of this. They need to know that they're believed because so often they're made to feel that they're exaggerating the story or they didn't get it right, that's part of the gaslighting, that they can't trust the evidence of their senses and how they are deciphering what happened. And mm, they also will often underplay and really downgrade how much they've been traumatized because it wasn't supposed to be seen that way in the group. Like you're supposed to just deal with being abused or you're it's for your benefit. Uh, You're supposed to be appreciative of being treated that way, uh, being selected for something that turned out to be abusive. So abuse, neglect, get underreported a lot of the time by people who leave. And what helps is defining for them what they've been through. Like, oh, that actually is abuse. That's why you're having nightmares. That's why you break into a cold sweat when you hear someone who has similar voice to the person who did that to you. I want you to understand yourself and your reactions And you'll only understand it if you know what happened to you. And also that it wasn't your fault, that you didn't bring it in, that it wasn't because of you, because, you know, within a cultic system, as you know, anything that's good that happens to you is because of the leadership. Anything that's bad is because of you.
0: And because you didn't
1: follow the leadership. Right. Because you didn't follow the leadership. You or you weren't feeling it in your heart or whatever, whatever it is, it's always back on you. So to be able to have a clearer sense of who the culprit is, and you can take it off of you is also a really important thing. It's also good for people to understand that they have strengths, that they have capabilities, that they can live in the world and be successful at it, even though they have been told that they don't have these strengths and these capabilities, and to have them understand why they were convinced of that and how that fed the need of the leader to have you be dependent on them and to never want to leave because you don't feel equipped to be in the world. I think helping people understand why they were taught what they were taught and how it wasn't for them. It was, right, it was for the control that the leader or the group needed to have over them. That's really helpful just to understand the source and the reasoning for the things they were taught as truths about them. And I think it's really helpful to connect people with other people. That's why I run a support group so people don't feel isolated and alone. And I will often talk to people about how they are having trouble relaxing and resting because when you're in a cult, you're going, 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 you're doing, doing, doing you learn that you matter the least and you don't have to sleep and it's fine if you're not eating and you're you're supposed to somehow be devoted to the cause. And I try to shift that in my counseling work so people know they are also the cause, mm-hmm. that it's important for them to take care of them and that that's not selfish mm-hmm. and it's not being lazy and it's not having pride. It's not all the other things that it's called when you care about you and that you have to be a good steward of the self in order to then do work that you might want to do that's in service of others, but it needs to happen in that order. And there's nothing wrong with you for doing it in that order. And I also, I guess I want people to know that the world outside is actually not going to be as scary and not going to be as critical and not going to be as gossipy. Like Mm -hmm. they'll have more privacy. They're there aren't people who are going to give them a hard time about everything. I have clients who panic if they're running even 30 seconds late for mm-hmm. a session, or they come onto a Zoom call a little bit late, or they come to the group a little bit late. I'll sometimes see them in the waiting area on Zoom and mm-hmm. then they're gone, they're missing. And I realize they're panicking because they're sure that I'm going to give them a hard time. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to berate them for not showing their uh, allegiance to this group and not showing that it matters enough for them to be there on time, all the things that they went through Mm -hmm. in their cultic group. And they're also, they've expressed to me, they're worried about not showing up for the group because when they didn't go to things, that's when they were talked about in their absence Mm -hmm. and berated and given a hard time. So they were afraid of walking back into what suddenly felt like an unsafe situation. So I let people know we do not talk about you. And if someone does want to talk about you while you're not here, if it's something positive, like, oh, it's so nice to meet that woman the last time. And I hope she comes back. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll be happy to tell you about that. But you know, someone who just wants to berate yeah. you, uh, not allowed, not allowed. Mm-hmm. So it always needs to feel safe. You just if they're doing this work and learning from people and what makes them so anxious and you just see how much they've been mistreated Mm -hmm. and how much they've been under a microscope that has been so unfair to them and has made them so tense and so worried needlessly.
0: Absolutely. So I heard you say, believe them, let them know that you believe their story. I heard you say, give them like language, to name what happened and then validate even that it was like a big deal like naming mm-hmm. it as abuse or naming it as as gaslighting I heard you say help them access like the internal resources that they have and access their own you didn't say the word power but <laughs> their own their own resources their own internal resources. Yeah reframe things. So learning that like outside world is not scary and, and just having that, like a lot of like compassion for the trauma that results in anxiety or Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. fear or mistrust or anything like that. All like super, super, super important things. And I just think about like your support groups and like the courage that it takes for someone to show up to something like that when they have Mm -hmm a lot of times it is a group right. that happened in the first place and yeah. that can be very scary yet such a huge part of the recovery process to be able to engage with a group again and
1: yeah with oh other yeah
0: again very
1: very right. important yeah there are people also who have been in support groups that have really really been unhealthy and also ones where they dealt with being in a treatment center that were kind of patterned, well, they took off from Synanon, which started this this horrible practice. It was a cult in California, started a whole horrible practice of something called the game, where you are supposed to berate people in a group you're supposed to shout at them call them things they would sometimes need to grovel like walk around on on their hands and knees to show that they were they knew they were less than or they needed to wear a sign uh, around them around their neck that would say something it could say whore it could say anything and whatever they may have been labeled that day i mean it was so it was attack Therapy. I don't even want to call it therapy. And so people coming out of that ha- have interesting reactions when I do counseling with them. And, and what is one of the reactions that's kind of sad is that some of them think that I don't care about them because I'm not shouting at them because mm-hmm. of the translation.
0: I get that you know, though. I, I totally get that. Yeah. Right?
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. That was the justification for someone being cruel. Like, no, this is for your benefit. And so I remember one person saying, I don't know if this is going to work because you've never raised your voice, but mm-hmm. it's like someone raised by an abusive parent, you know, like this is how I show you that I care. Uh, it's, oh, it's such a perversion of uh, how it should be.
0: No, absolutely. No, and I I mean, I'm remembering how like I migrated to someone who was like a known abusive pastor in the evangelical world is Mark Driscoll. And I remember migrating to him as a leader because he yelled from the pulpit and because he was so angry from the pulpit. And I had, without realizing it, been conditioned to see that a strong, trustworthy mm-hmm. leadership mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. I was like very, just very disorienting when I realized mm-hmm. that that happened and that I yeah, like right. migrated to that wow. anger as good yeah. leadership, it totally, oh, related,
1: yeah. totally, really. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's really terrible. And people get that. They, they then wind up sometimes in relationships with people who are really mistreating them because that ha- was translated as love. That's another thing to define like what is love and how, what can that look like in a relationship and what are rights? I mean, I remember one time uh I, I was flown to Texas to help with the, the raid, had, which had already taken place on the FLDS compound. And I, I don't like raids, yeah. <laughs> even though I've worked with a lot of people who did feel traumatized by them, but also relieved knowing that there were people out there who cared about what was happening behind closed doors. Uh-huh. Like it's a very mixed thing. So I wasn't involved in all planning it, but they asked me to come in to to help to train the social workers who were working with the people who had been taken off the camp- compound, even temporarily. And they were talking to these women or young, well, they were really still girls who were these sister wives about rights, that they had rights. And they were looking blankly. And, mm-hmm. uh, and they said, they, they don't seem to believe us that they have rights. I said, they don't know what rights are. We have to go back. We have to teach them that there are these things that are called rights, that there is things called boundaries, that you have the right to say no or to control your body. But that's not true in their group. So they're not going to believe you that they have these rights. They probably don't even know that there's this thing called a constitution. Mm-hmm. that says that they have rights that, that are legally protected.
0: Like they don't even have a concept for it.
1: Right. Like, and that if they were to impose those rights, they would be abused or they would be kicked out. And so it's not safe for them to have them. So we can't jump in assuming that they've had the same life and same education and same exposure. Like we have to educate them about the fact that these things exist mm-hmm. and that maybe that will help them Leave at some point knowing that these things exist but only outside the compound.
0: Mhm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know that you and I probably come from the same position of just because someone has a credential doesn't make them someone mm-hmm. as as you as you discovered with these social workers doesn't make them uh equipped to work with this demographic
1: mm-hmm. but
0: if someone were to be interested in working with this demographic and uh wanted to equip themselves and get the resources to be able to work with this demographic, what would you point them to? And what would you direct them to? And what are some recommendations for things that they could pursue to become equipped?
1: Okay. I think it's a great thing. And yes, just because someone has has initials after their name doesn't make them healthy people. And, and I have seen that and I've seen it for people who have dealt with abuse at the hands of psychiatrists who have an MD and, you know, have the, these very advanced degrees, but they have a disorder that makes yeah. them totally misbehave. So, and, and there are people who don't have credentials who I think have been great. So it's still buyer beware, unfortunately, even it's it's important just to be a smart spiritual consumer and a smart therapeutic consumer. I think what people also need to know is that now there are a lot of people who are running what they're calling support groups, And they're not necessarily credentialed people and some run a lovely group, but they're not quite sure what to do when there is an issue. And they'll sometimes call me like this happened. And then someone felt ganged up on. And we started talking about someone thinking it would be helpful, but then they felt traumatized and like it can go down kind of a rabbit hole Mm -hmm. if there isn't someone who's had training in how to run a support group. So you want to go to someone who's had training and also, there are people who have left cults who will sometimes run them as cults, because mm-hmm. that's how they manage. That's what they groups, know, right? That's, that's what they know. Yeah. And yeah. then there's a group of favorites, and that you know, and they feel they know it, and other ones are feeling ostracized. It's very culty, and they're feeling judged. So, see how you feel. Know that if you get involved in a group, that's not your only option. You can go shopping around. Absolutely. You don't owe them anything. Yeah. You don't have to keep coming back if it doesn't feel safe. There is, there, this needs to be part of the curriculum for social work schools. For, oh my
0: gosh, yes. Right? Absolutely. It does, because it's so common. It's so
1: It's so, so common. common. I'm sure you've had the experience. And if you talk about this issue, invariably when I'm out somewhere and someone asks me what I do, there's at least one other person who's going to say, oh, yeah, I was in something or my family member was. Like, it happens so frequently so- now. That I think it should be curriculum and for people who are learning to, to become therapists of any sort, it's just really not. And it's still not seen as something really as important as it should be. I've, I've taught a class at USC about how to run support groups for people who have been abused in groups, but it's just, they'll invite. Yeah, with just that
0: extra awareness of like, they're coming into this and they're instantly going to feel anxious. Right group and just that extra layer of awareness that someone who has never had that experience would have no idea that someone would come into that environment.
1: No, right. It's, it is, it's a niche and, and I'm just, I'm asked when I'm asked, but most of the time not because they have other things that they think are more important to teach them and maybe they are, but still this happens. And so the, there is a program out of England run by. Uh, colleagues of mine who are lovely and wonderful have had a lot of experience it's through the university of Salford and I think you can take courses online it's a master's in coerce, coercion and coercive of control and it teaches you about what that is mm. I don't know to what degree it teaches you to do the counseling piece but mm-hmm. it is a master's in it so you have a good framework for mm-hmm. understanding it. And it's new, it's a few years old. And I there need to be more programs like it. But I think if people want to go to conferences or if they want to attend like the International Cultic Studies Association conference online, where there is a section that is for professionals, how you do this work. I do some lectures on it, how you also do interventions, how they're different than regular interventions. And yeah, just understanding the nuanced differences in this work is important and to understand why those things are important. So I think attending conferences, if you want to learn reading some books, I'm in the process of writing one that is going to be about my counseling work. So hopefully yeah. that will be out soon, I hope. Yeah. Uh, and and it will be a little bit more of like a how-to. This is what happened to this person and this is how I thought to help them And because that's missing out there. Yeah. Uh, uh, So, yeah, so I think this program in England and also attending workshops at this at the International Cultic Studies Association Conference, which is yearly, is a good place to start. And and then reading books, you know, from people who are professionals who are talking about how they do this work. I because, again, there were so few resources, I really have learned most of what I've learned from my clients, really taking notes, like, okay, that worked better than this. And mm-hmm. why understanding it? And, you know, we've be a learner we've of better. the people mm-hmm. that you're actually
0: working with. And that sounds like that's part of your story is you learned from the actual people that you were right. working with. And, and that can be, I think, really empowering too, I think for someone on the client side of this person maybe doesn't understand, but they are, they want to
1: understand
0: and they want, right.
1: to I mean, now I can come in feeling that I have an expertise, which is great, but I also come in with enough humility to know, I don't know everything, which is a really important thing for someone who's been involved in the cult to see that someone coming in who seems to have this position of authority is saying, I'm open to you teaching me.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm open like, to being wrong on you Right. Exactly. Person.
1: Exactly. You, I can know about cults, but I don't know you mm-hmm. and I don't know what's going to work for you. Some of this is going to be trial and error. I'm not going to punish you oh. or, you know, I'm, I'm not going to stop treating you because something I provided for you turned out to not be the best thing for you. And you let me know that I'll be happy that you let me know that so we can fine tune it for you. But yeah, that dialogue does not happen
0: (laughs) in a cult. In the cult. Like, yeah, like you have something to offer here that maybe I don't have. And like having that kind of relationship uh, when you don't know and when it isn't your expertise, but it is something that you're interested in for something, for someone who is... And I, I mean, I encounter this so often just with like my clients and it typically comes up even just in their first initial consultation of trying therapy and imid- and immediately realizing it's not helping and it's mm-hmm. not, the person doesn't get them and doesn't understand. And, and then to have to go through the process of finding someone, you know, when you're, when you're traumatized and when you're exhausted and we're just trying to figure things out, what are some guidelines that you can give to someone who is looking for a mental health professional to help them that they can maybe look for just immediately when they look on someone's website and questions that they can ask during the consultation to kind of help them narrow down someone who might be able to help.
1: Right. So first, you know, I think you and I are going to be equally reactive to going onto people's websites who seemed who who are trying to come across like they have the answer. Mm-hmm. They are the one. And they need to be talking all about their credentials and how they can provide something that no one else can. That is a huge red flag because they're never also typically going to be able to admit that they were wrong because they know it all. So if it feels collaborative, like we will work together to help you get to where you want to go, that kind of language, like I'm going to hold your hand while we kind of muddle through this together. I can offer what I know, but this is something that, you know, I'm not going to be coming in and I'm going to be the expert and you have to listen to everything I say. And so, yes, if it has that kind of we're working together language and that I'm open to hearing and I want to understand you so that I can help you, that is, it's nice that you get to be as the former member or the person who's been through this, you get to be the expert in that space too, because you know your story and you know what you feel you intuit that you need and you want a therapist to be open to that. It's also important for people to notice when they first start going to a therapist, if they get the sense that they have to make a commitment for a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. That is something I think people should not necessarily agree to Mm -hmm. because then you're locked in. And then if you decide that it really isn't working for you, you might feel like you have to keep coming back because you're of that mindset of you made a commitment and you have to stick with your commitments, but it only matters if it's helping you. And so you want it to be open-ended. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to be careful to, to not work with a therapist who keeps changing the subject. Like mm-hmm. if you really want to talk about your cult experience or the manipulation that you went through or something that's specific to your experience and the therapist just isn't trained in that. And instead of saying, you know what, do you have a book that would be good? Or maybe I'll do some research or, cause yeah. I have the therapist, that. The
0: therapist right. says I will learn more about this.
1: Right. And I've had therapists contact me and say, listen, I'm not telling you, I want you to meet with my client. We have a good relationship, but I don't know about this. Can you guide me on this? And can you give me some resources? I really value that. I think that's really wonderful. So if the therapist is open to learning so that they don't keep just kind of ignoring when you bring it up, because it's not their expertise and saying, well, now let's just talk about your mother or whatever, like the usual suspect. No. And- you want a therapist who honors your boundaries. Mm -hmm. And if you have a therapist who asks you questions and you don't know if you want to share so much information about yourself, even though in the cult you've been trained to share everything with anyone at all times, because you have to, if a therapist says, actually, that's I'm, I'm kind of glad that you're saying no, because you don't really know me yet and you don't feel comfortable talking and you don't know how I'm going to respond to your information that's good. Then that's safe. Mm-hmm. And so what can I do? I'll ask my clients this. What can I do to provide a, a feeling of safety here for you to let you know that I'm going to handle what you tell me in a healthy way and, and something that would feel safe for you? Yeah. There are therapists, and I've told people this, if you have a therapist who tells you, who uses either of these two words, which are like nails going down a chalkboard for me, resistance and withholding.
0: If they tell you that you are resisting or that you're being not.
1: resistant to this process Ugh. or you're withholding information from them. Right. Hmm. Just because you're saying, yeah, I don't know if I feel like. Forced intimacy thing." Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it also, and it
0: yeah. indicates that they're almost taking offense that the mm-hmm. client doesn't trust them. And someone who is aware of this experience will know it is going to take a lot for this client to trust me. So I'm not going to force them right. and I'm not going to push them. I'm going to mm-hmm. let them lead in how much they want to share. Yeah. And even just say that, Oof, right? <laughs> I, felt my, I felt my internal
1: haunches. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow. Right. And, um, and you, and that somehow the client also is told they need to make a commitment to this work, that this work is the thing that's going to change them. But that is just filled with too much ego mm-hmm. and too much stress. And just let the person be and let them breathe and let them bring snacks. <laughs> That's what Thanks I tell them. Like. Just Great let them time. relax, mm-hmm. right?
0: Maybe don't sip a glass of wine, but (laughs) having a cup of tea is
1: fine. Uh, Exactly. Yeah. I
0: remember one, one thing that I think my therapist said that felt me, helps me feel really safe was I had mentioned sexual abuse pretty early on in our, our therapeutic relationship together. And it was probably a good year before I was like talking about something else. And she was like a while back, you mentioned the sexual abuse. There is a chance that that has some you know, impact on what's happening here. Like, would you mind sharing about that a little more? And -hmm. and so I did. And then at the end of the session, she said, do you want to bring this up again? Like if it feels important to you or do you want me to ask you about it? Like, would you Mm -hmm. prefer to bring Mm -hmm. it up or would you prefer for me to ask you about it? And that just felt I just felt very empowered with that. And just like, mm-hmm. she was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave this in your hands. If right. you bring it up again and you want to talk about it, we will, if you want me to ask you about it, I can do that as well. Mm-hmm. And it just felt, you know, just very, it felt very empowering and it, and it definitely created a sense of safety for me. And I've yes. definitely like Im- implemented that in, in with my own clients too, of just like, is this, is this something that you want to talk about more or do you want to just wait and bring it up later when you're ready and just giving, yeah, just empowering the client, and when they have been so disempowered and teaching them little, yeah. little ways that you're allowed to take this back. You're allowed to take mm-hmm. this voice back. That's great. That is great. Interested in listening to more than 40 archived uncertain podcast episodes? All you have to do is sign up to become a monthly supporter of $5 or more. Becoming a monthly supporter will give you access to popular episodes such as Confessions of a Christian Parent and When Bad People Do Good Things. You'll also get access to this episode without any interruptions from yours truly. Become a monthly supporter today by going to tearsofedian.org slash support. Is there anything else that you want to share about what a client might need or what a mental health professional might need in, in this process.
1: So starting with mental health professionals, there are going to be times like I've, I've gotten to a certain degree desensitized to hearing some pretty horrific stories. I was not at the beginning, of course, but it is good if you find that You know, you want to be open to this population. Sometimes they've been through really horrendous, horrendous things. And so it's good. It's important for you to take care of you. And if this really is too much for you, or if it's too triggering, because you went through something similar, get more support for yourself so that you can be able, right? Or you can choose if there are certain parts of this population you don't want to work with, it wouldn't be healthy for you. And it's okay to say that. It's okay to know that. And then it's good for you to have a resource list because I never liked saying no to a client when I didn't have someone else to offer them, you know, like, (laughs) how about try this person? Um, and so then if you know that you're starting out and you're still very much affected by the things that you're being told, it is good to have at least three or four other names to refer people to for those cases. And really, you know, again, you know, really make sure that you feel protected along the way until you get maybe a little more able or desensitized for clients. I think it's really good to know that at least the way I talk about it, that they're the ones having the power in that space and they might not know it, but I will let people know that. Like I make sure and it's where it might. I'm not at all. I don't have OCD traits. Sometimes I wish I had more of them and my house would be cleaner, but <laughs> I measure the furniture in my office, which is a weird thing that might sound weird, but I make sure that my therapy chair isn't higher than Uh the other chairs or the couch. Like I want us literally to be seeing eye to eye that we are equals here Mm -hmm. and not lording over them. just because I'm in my chair, you know, I don't have power. I will tell clients that I'm going to provide for them my 31, 32 years of experience, but that they're hiring me they're in charge. If I'm not giving them what they want, they don't have to stay. It's like, if you take your car to a mechanic and they don't fix the problem, go somewhere else or say, this is actually not what I'm needing. I'm needing more of this. Like guide me to know what you would like. And then maybe I can provide that with more clarity and we can work on defining what might be helpful here, but really you can call the shots and you can, you know, you can cancel your next appointment and that's okay. If you have stuff to do, you can, I think it's also important when someone has been involved in a cult, sometimes they get very attached to the next person who is guiding them and leading them and they can get dependent. And it is my job, I think to be a a transitional object and it's fine if people want to be dependent on me for a time, but I will say, at some point, even though I know you're calling me to ask me what decision you should make about something, I would love it if you, if we could work together where you will feel confident being the one where you can ask yourself that question and feel good about the answer you give yourself and trust it. So I can be that person for a while, but part of the goal here will be to hand the baton back to you. Mm-hmm you know, I think it's an important message.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And that just, I think that that for someone looking for a mental health professional that they can work with to, as you mentioned that collaboration and that mutuality and, and, and someone not showing up in that space and like, I am the expert. I know this is what you need, Mm -hmm. um, et cetera, et cetera, that that's a good distinction to make. And, and you can typically sense that a little bit in that first meeting and that first consultation. Um, Mm -hmm. Not always, but I feel like that's something that, that will come up. Um, And yeah, and I also feel like it's, it's totally fine to ask a mental health professional in that initial consultation, What are some books that you have read about this? What is, what is training that you have had on this? When you say that you're trauma informed, what does that mean exactly? Mm -hmm. Have you had training in that? Or is it just, you know, what trauma is, you know, like, Mm -hmm. like having that, you can ask those questions right out of the gate and, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And a good mental health professional is not going to get defensive
1: Right. Even if people want to take a break, like I'll say, sure. I mean, of course I don't even have to give them permission. They can take a break whenever they want, but if they want to see if they are able to take what they got from therapy and kind of just use it on their own and, and feel like they're able to call the shots in their life and see what they can do by themselves. I think it's really important Mm -hmm. to have people have that time. And then there's no shame in calling me and saying. Well, something came up and mm-hmm. I realized I'm not equipped for that thing that just came up yet. So can I come back for a while? And yeah. I mean, you know where to reach me. You know, you have my number if you need to come back. Great. But, and then when you're done with that, feel free to, you know, I also, I don't mind collaborating with other professionals. So if someone does EMDR and I think that would be really good for a client, then I'll, I will refer them or say, sure, they can go see someone else. The only time that becomes an issue is if someone else is seeing someone who I think is fraudulent in some way, like they're consulting with their psychic, you know, who's telling them that they don't need counseling, they just need to pay the psychic $10,000 and they will free them of their negative energy. Okay, then we're going to have a discussion about that. But if it's someone healthy who is an adjunct, I think part of the wisdom that we have in this world is knowing who our resources are and utilizing them. And so I'm, I never feel in competition, but I will warn someone if I think they're getting advice from someone who is taking advantage of them. Mm -hmm.
0: Absolutely. Well, this has been amazing. And I know that, both uh, mental health professionals and folks looking for one are going to find this episode very, very helpful. If folks want to know more about you and the work that you do, where is the best place to find you?
1: Right. So you can listen to my podcast. It comes out each week. It's called indoctrination. It's on every platform, as far as I can tell, which is lovely. And I can be reached. All my information is on my website, rachelbernsteintherapy.com. I'm Los Angeles-based, but I work with people all over the world, and I have this support group that's every other Wednesday night on Zoom, and I work with families with people who are trying to reach out to loved ones, trying to plan a way to intervene if they feel they need to do that, and doing just general counseling day-to-day in my office in Los Angeles, but mostly still on Zoom, and so yeah, there are a lot of places to reach me, and I'm excited to have people reach out if they think it would be helpful.
0: Is your support group just kind of anyone can join at any time or do you have like, is it for like a certain amount of time and you just. Have right.
1: Stuff? Yeah. That's a great question. So it's open-ended, but I just need to vet the person before. Cause we have had issues with people just jumping on who were from a particular group and they were spying basically on the group to see if Former members of that group were coming to this and wanting to get their information. So I, as a safeguard, talk to everyone first mm-hmm. to vet them before I give them the Zoom link, and and then I do have right of refusal. Like if someone was pretending to be someone, it turns out that they're not, and they really are there to wreak havoc they're no longer invited back. It needs to remain a safe place. And it really has except for Scientology at the beginning. um, And that's why I have that. I I have to have that interview process now because Mm. of them, but it's been great and it's been safe and it's a really nice feeling, nice kind of supportive, collaborative feeling in that group. But yeah, so people can join at any time and it People come when they come. It's very open ended, and which I think people value that there Absolutely. isn't the expectation. And I'm not going to contact them like, "What well, was wrong? How come you didn't come? Yeah, didn't why didn't you to... come?
0: Yeah, Where yeah, were you? yeah right. that's,
1: that's great." Yeah. And then one final thing, you mentioned
0: a a university that has a master's degree about po- coercive control. I'd love to drop that in the show notes as well. What was the university?
1: University of Salford. It's in England. And it's S-A-L-F-O-R-D. S-A-L-F-O-R-D. And they have a program in coercive control.
0: All right. I will look that up and I will make sure that makes it in the show notes. Thank you
1: so much for for being here. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for interviewing me. It was lovely to talk to you. This is a podcast of Tears of Eden,
0: the community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. This podcast is produced recorded, edited, and hosted by me, Katherine Spearing. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review. Thank you for listening.